I'm thinking about this meme with like the like bell curve and like in the beginning it's built what you need and in the end it's just built what you need and it's like in the middle is like oh it always has to be the perfect prototype with all states all figured out and everything right no one needs to know how you build your prototype and I think that's really the part is that like the effect is the thing that matters. Welcome to Deep Dives. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. This episode is a special one because we get to go behind the scenes with the prototyping team at Figma. We're gonna hear from two people, Nico Klein, who's the designer, and Garrett Miller, who's a PM on the prototyping team. So a big part of this discussion is figuring out what can we learn from how design actually works at Figma. And then we're gonna get a prototyping masterclass from the people who designed it. But first, I wanted to learn everything that led up to the unveiling of the advanced prototyping features at Config 2023. I think in June 6, 2022, which was pretty much exactly a year before the 2023 Config, we actually had an internal presentation at our like all hands our Fignation where we shared out here's our plan for prototyping of what we're going to ship next year at Config, and we talked about the story of, of of aiming to reduce the noodle messes, the pasta pictures that we've seen so many people have, imagining what it does look like once you get away from the entire canvas being filled with noodles to a prototype being something manageable, something you can like see and read. And so we knew it a year ago and that story started, I would say around six months earlier, where basically we were being asked from show and our leadership team on how we can like make a bigger jump in prototyping. Over the years before this, we've always worked on improving it step-by-step, step, right? We've, we've, we've made things like interactive components and smart animate but it felt like there was this looming thing of like, okay, we need to find a way to reduce the number of noodles for slightly more complex prototypes. But getting started on this and understanding that that is the right direction to focus on over so many of the other things we could do, that I would say the whole research and design process took about six months and ended with this June presentation. Can you talk a little bit more about the research component? How did you go about structuring that research and what are some of the key takeaways that informed the higher level vision for what prototyping could become? The great thing for us essentially was basically that the ask from leadership was very open-ended. It was like, where could prototyping go, right? How can we make bigger steps within the prototyping space? And so the research was ultimately that we interviewed, I think up to 20 people from all kinds of like, like skill levels. We've interviewed like novice users and try to look at how they are using prototyping for the first time. We try to understand why do people not prototype today? And we try to essentially see what people do when they prototype in Figma successfully and what their problems are and understand what other tools they're using if Figma can't fulfill their prototyping needs. And so the interesting thing really was that there are like broad, broad ways for using prototyping for one side being you want to demo something, you want to show something, you want to kind of like convince something that this is a good idea or communicate a specific animation detail to your developers, or you want to validate a product direction. Does your idea fulfill the needs of your customers? And those two are relatively separate prototypes. 
And we've seen that people are using amazing tools for these like more one-off high fidelity micro interaction prototypes. But we've seen that the pain that people have for building these more realistic prototypes is so much bigger in Figma because you can kind of do it if you put enough work in it, right? Like you can create a checkout flow if you create 400 screen combinations that are all just tinyly different. And some people did, and that was the wild part for us because we realized they are doing this in Figma, but it is incredibly painful for them. And that I think is a perfect opportunity for a big feature break because you're essentially solving this, this true pain that people experience within your product. You don't need to convince them to come in. They're already there. They're getting to that level of fidelity and we are providing them a better way to do so now. It's cool to hear how green pasture it was at the beginning stages of the project. And I'd love to get a little bit more clarity around when did variables come into the picture? Like when you were first thinking about what this could become, were variables as they more or less exist today, always part of that vision? Were they an unlock that came later down the road? How did you get alignment on that being the high level way to execute against this vision? Variables came into play as we understood the different use cases that I talked about, right? And we started sketching out what kind of features we would need to have to solve these problems. And variables is an obvious solution in this space because if you look at these hundreds of screens, the differences in between those screens are tiny. And it is about the relation between the global state in a program or in a, in a prototype essentially, and how that relates to which exact variants of a button are shown, that that was the thing that once we would find a way to abstract that particular aspect of these prototypes into variables, we would be able to remove the need for all of those redundant screens. So let's say you've just kind of gotten buy-in on the fact that, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to make a real move in advanced prototyping. We're going to build on top of variables. Can you talk to me a little bit about what collaboration looked like at a team level? Because to me, it feels a little bit complex, right? Like as the prototyping team, you're building on this foundation that my assumption is a whole other team is working on for design systems and variables as tokens. So how did you stay aligned throughout the project, especially in the early days? And what did that collaboration look like? It was ultimately relatively clear to us from the beginning that those are similar concepts. Tokens hold individual pieces of value, right? And, and, and variables hold, in, hold individual pieces of value. So ultimately, it, there was a question, which is, can we do this together? So it was a lucky, lucky moment in, in the end for us that like the design systems team wasn't super far along. We weren't super far along. And we just realized, hey, we need to work together on this. We should work together on this. Of course, there are struggles because design systems, variables, design system tokens, need to be able to capture users that have thousands of tokens. And for prototyping, often a couple of variables are enough. So of course there are some differences in how they are viewed and edited. But ultimately for, for us as Figma, we knew that we needed to build one underlying system. We wouldn't maintain technically two different systems that are kind of the same and kind of different. And if you try to explain this to users that are not super well-versed in all of those terms, 
how are they supposed to understand this if we are already arguing about this? This is around the time I think I came in. So this is roughly the end of summer of 2022. I had actually been talking to Figma previously about some product manager roles, but at the time I was, I was really focused on, on doing my own thing. I had been an engineer at Slack for a number of years and I left Slack because I was, I was really focused on kind of the space between design and engineering is something that was, that was really important to me. Having been an engineer, having been a designer, I knew that there's a lot of nuance in the space between when you're coming up with an idea and when you're trying to hand it off. And I always had this idea that wouldn't it be nice if the rectangles that were being created by designers were also the rectangles that were being poked by the users. I've been working on design systems as well as Slack and was really deeply invested in like if we could just solve some of these central collaborative points and come up with better abstractions that, that make sense to both sides, to designers, to engineers, then we could all be moving a lot faster. So I've been working on a startup focused on some of those pieces. And over time, I think what I realized is that's a huge, vast, more than industry-wide problem to solve. And maybe a startup isn't the best way to solve some of that. And I think the timing was really fortunate because this is roughly when, when I started talking to Nico and to Shoko Amato, our VP of product at, at Figma again, where they're like, well, you know, we're doing some things with prototyping. We can't say what yet, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks about it. And it was, it was then that I learned more about these plans for advanced prototyping. And I was like, oh, wow. So there's like, there's this Venn diagram between what I was really trying to solve and trying to focus on and what Figma now is saying that it wants to focus on. And I think prototyping is an interesting kind of Trojan horse for a lot of these problems because the inherent nature and definition of a prototype means you're allowed to be a little bit mushier. You're allowed to be a little like take, you know, cut corners in order to achieve something that you want to achieve sooner. And I think there's a benefit to that because it means that you're not exactly trying to build a production fidelity experience. You're trying to build something that's, that's close enough. And I think that's some of the nuance that, that Nico is kind of capturing with variables here, which is that in a design systems world, a variable is almost, it's, it's a source of truth. It's a token of truth that has to be consistent across all of these different services, across all of these different people. It holds an intrinsic value that can change, but the, the benefit of it is that it doesn't need to change. It can be shared across all these things. And you take that same core object and you put it into prototyping and it's like, it's almost the opposite. It's like, yes, I have this little thing that can store data, but I want to do all sorts of things to it. I want to mush it into here. I want to modify it. I want to run expressions on it. I want to try to use it to hold the state of this frame. But yeah, I came in to fill the product manager role and help with some of this coordination. And I think the, the very like on the ground week by week process for this was us meeting with design systems. So our engineers were going to their weeklies. They would often attend ours where, when we're all touching variables, we actually are still continuing to have like weekly meetings in which we talk to design systems using variables as kind of the bridge core topic, but there's a lot of, of shared real estate there between components, variables, handoff, and everything in between. And I think a lot of the, the trickiest conversations have been us figuring out how we can use them in the different ways that we want to use them while still making them make sense to our users. I want to drill into that last point as a way to kind of learn more about what actually does the prototyping design and product team look like at Figma and how are you exploring ideas and, and reaching decisions? Because one of the components of this project that I think is really fascinating and a huge unlock, but probably wasn't super obvious is this idea of using text strings to manipulate a component's state. I think it's my favorite part of the entire feature release. And yet surely that wasn't like super obvious in the beginning. So how do you take something like that and work together to arrive at like, yes, this is the way to do it. And 
now we can get people bought in on this idea. That one was funny. I think primarily because it points a little bit to what Garrett had said, where it's like, it doesn't need to be perfect. It needs to be something that enables designers to be more creative in a, in a faster way, in a more approachable way. And it doesn't need to necessarily make perfect, technically scalable sense that variant binding, as we call it, also works in both directions. Like you can change it from the outside and if the interactive component changes, it also changes the applied variant. That might not be the perfect production way to build an application, but it is a directly understandable way of how to use it. And that's the same thing with these text strings, right? It's like, oh yeah, but if you use a text string, then what happens if you change it to something that doesn't has a variant state underneath it. And it's like, yeah, then it just doesn't work, right? And it's like, oh, but like, it would be nice if you could make it work in such a way that the users never run into that particular kind of problem. That's true. But then I think that comes back with a different kind of cost, right? Because now you have that state that you want to control on that component. And now you need to create a different kind of variable. And if you all set this up correctly, you'll never run into the issue that it's the wrong like variable name and the wrong state. And it comes at such a complexity cost that we ultimately realized, hey, this is a super powerful functionality. It is an easy way to define like not micro, but like slightly bigger changes inside of an application where it's like, oh, the state changes from this to this. If I click on this, like those kinds of same screen interactions are relatively easily achievable by this. And we just realized once we tried it out, it's like, yeah, this is, this is good enough. Interestingly, designers that did not came from a coding background had no problem to adopt this in our beta user testing flows. And just like, oh yeah, of course this is how it works. Designers with much more of a development background were a little bit like, I don't think this should work. Like, why is this working? <laughs> and and I think that actually shows some of this like difference where it really isn't about the technical perfectness of these models that we have in prototyping. It is about intuitive abstractions that, that make creating of interactive ideas easier and faster. And the technical perfection can come in later. Can you talk a little bit more about that beta program? At what point did you start to loop users in and how are you learning and figuring out whether or not what you're doing is working. So I think generally at, at, at Figma, when working on editor features, it, it can be like either incredibly easy to run a beta program because it's a, a feature that changes maybe some of the editing behaviors, right? And then in those cases, you can just turn on a feature flag for a couple of users, you contact them and you gather some feedback from them, right? With something like this, it's very different because if you think about this, it's a new kind of like behavior and data that users can create. And since Figma is just so entirely multiplayer, if I'm on the feature flag and you're not, I'm adding things to the document that you have no, not the capability to read. So we have to be careful and essentially, I think, add all like an entire organization at once. And so we started with earlier just like usability testing behaviors where we basically just had a set of example cases that we wanted to run users through, but we did end up kind of like inviting entire organizations, right, Garrett? Yeah. So we worked, we were closely with um, product marketing on this one. And I think as Nico said, each beta for us is a different flavor, depending on the feature set, the, the scope of it, um, especially with one where you're kind of 
changing some of the underlying foundations or functionality of Figma in such a way like variables, you know, variables go across all files in all states. And so you can't just turn that on in a, in a more bespoke way, like in a way that you may have around a, lay, a layout like feature or something that is, that is contained within a certain sandbox within the editor itself. So that was something that we struggled with because we had that epiphany of like, oh, oh, dang, we can't actually go and like just turn this on for these three people within this much larger team. And that inherently means that like, okay, we, we can't, we can't beta test this with really large customers right now because we don't want to bring 400 people in and potentially like disrupt things, especially early stage with some of the the, um, the earlier months where we were fairly sure that the features wouldn't corrupt files, but we weren't positive, right? So we it really limited us to smaller teams, which we had, like we, Figma, had, had good working relationships with or, or past histories with. Um, folks that we know could recognize the the benefits, but also recognize that like there are some some risks to using these things, or very specific individuals and teams of one, essentially people who you wouldn't need to be collaborating within their own Figma team. And I think there's the use cases that Nico talks about, where we see people building hundreds of frames across these massive files, and you know just to drag the canvas, it stutters. But then there's also the people who I use this metaphor of like. If you have a goldfish and you put it in any aquarium, the goldfish will always grow to the size of its aquarium. And you put it in a bigger aquarium, the goldfish will then grow bigger. And we definitely have users that, that see Figma as a challenge to that effect, right? They'll like figure out ways to use that same functionality to do things that even we hadn't considered. And so we pulled in a few of those users too, because there's no better stress test for a system than someone who's trying to find an escape. They'll push this to whatever limit that we don't know about. I think there were two people who rebuilt an entire CPU and we're able to like compile machine code. I don't, I don't even know how this works. You end up at a point where you build a system and people build stuff on top of this. And we're just sitting in Slack and we're like, oh, how? It had to be fun watching it all come out because it was almost like a race on Twitter too. Because like everyone wanted to be the first one to create some kind of a novel pattern. And I remember like thinking, wow, I think someone just built a full keyboard within like 45 minutes of the feature even being released. And it's like, well, what is happening here? It's the most rewarding thing to me every time, like people ask us like, how is it designing Figma and Figma? And it's like, it can be really boring because you have to think about so many edge cases and so many functionalities and so many other things that also happen. And then the engineers DM you and is like, oh, what, what happens if this case is copied out of version history and pasted into a file that isn't in the same org? I don't know, that's a constructed use case, but like stuff like this happens a lot. And so you focus on all of these tiny, tiny details of what this building block and all the edges of this building blocks looks like that you don't necessarily see what people can do if they just put those building blocks together. And then you take a step back and you're like, Oh, wow. You built like an entire, like life-sized Lego sculptures of our building blocks. I know every single building block here. I would have never guessed you would build a life-sized Lego figure out of those things. And that is incredibly rewarding because it feels like you've helped more creativity come to life. And that's cool. Let's talk a little bit more about that actually, because I'm always fascinated to hear from product teams, how they keep track of all of the nasty edge cases and points of contention between the different features and how they play together. And to me, this is a behemoth of a you know bucket of edge cases. There's a million different states that you'd have to keep track of. How do you tackle something like that as a product team? Garrett, do you know? 
Yeah, right. Yeah, we've joked in the past, actually, that we have created a machine that creates nothing but edge cases, right? But we do have good processes, I think, both within Figma and within the prototyping team that help with this. And one of the things that's honestly most useful is probably the most simplistic too, which is just bug bashes that we do when we get our features to a certain point. Especially these features where, you know, Figma, we, we prototype, but we don't prototype nearly at the level of some of our customers. And we can't reliably say like to the folks who are prototyping inside Figma, hey, we've also done this other feature. So stop what you're doing today to go like test this out and find any bugs for us. So um, our engineering culture and engineering teams are really good about essentially putting together files of test cases and problems and user stories and challenges and saying, go and try to do all of these things using this functionality. And honestly, that's kind of our, you know, one of our main insurance policies, because we always find bugs. We always find weird, weird, weird idiosyncrasies. Sometimes we discover bugs in other parts of, of Figma at the same time, but those have been one of our most reliable ways, especially in these tricky times when beta testing is either hard to do or a bad idea or not, you know, not quite right. And from a designer's perspective, it really is the case where it's like, I do not know all of the edge cases. I do not design all of the edge cases. It's not even a question that like, I'm going to do this. We work so closely with our engineering partners that, for example, in the way we built the expression builder, I'm designing a couple of states. I'm designing a little overview, maybe a mini prototype here for a simple flow. But I think the main work that I do then as a designer is to integrate in this in this case it was it was John the engineer integrate them to a point that John cares about the quality of the experience much more than it is for me prescribing every single thing myself if the engineer you work with cares about the quality of the experience and understands what kind of user flows people might go through what kind of examples they would build so many problems I just don't have to design. So it's in a way, it's a lazy way of like not defining everything, but in a way, it's just a nicer way of working and a more efficient way of working. And it's fun because it pulls in people on the engineering side who sometimes don't necessarily have that much exposure to these like product slash design empathy kind of ways of building a product. But if they care, it's just going to be so much better. Let's talk about that expression builder a little bit, because I think a big part of this project is you're kind of teaching designers how to think like engineers, which can be a bit daunting for people. So can you talk about that part of the design process a little bit more and maybe even more broadly, how you think about striking this balance between power and simplicity in the product? I think the expression builder is an interesting case because the like range of, of, of users needing to be comfortable in this space is, is, is pretty large, right? You want to be able to have a, the classic saying, low floor, high ceiling, but ultimately you want to be able to, to allow people to start playing with it that don't necessarily know how, what you would imagine to fill in here. They need to somehow find a way to do it. An empty text box is, is incredibly daunting. Because it's like, what the fuck should I write? So that was one thing where it was like, okay, we need to find a way to make it kind of clickable. And that's like one thing where it's like, how do you make a text box clickable? But then on the other end of the spectrum, right, you have people who are like, oh, this is an expression builder. It's basically like a, a mini code editor. And like, I can just write and I can like use 
double and and sign to do conditional connections and and like the double pipe sign for or and they just know this stuff and they just want to type and so you have these like kind of opposite ends of interacting with this product where it's like oh just by clicking i need to find out what this works and and, and just by typing i need to be able to like complete these things quickly so that's kind of like what we try to marry together here we call it the operator drawer I don't know if that name makes total sense, but it's where the variables pop up. It's where the oper operators pop up. You can click on them and then it fills it in and then shows you the next operator. So you actually can just click together all of your expressions, but we needed to do that in a way that still allows you to type and allows you to smoothly type. And when we talk about typing, it's always like, oh, an input field, like, you know, how hard could it be? And it's like, oh yeah, but you have all these tiny, I don't even want to call them micro interactions. You have these like tiny interactions that are built in and expected in an input field. So the typing case was the case that was much harder in terms of edge cases. It's easy to build a kind of like a click together kind of thing, but it, it actually ended up being really hard to make something where typing feels smooth. And so we needed to do it in a way that like feels great for both and doesn't slow down more expert users and allows an easier entrance for more novice users. I think it's probably safe to assume that when you're dealing with a project of this size and this level of complexity that everything probably didn't go exactly according to plan and probably wasn't like this super linear path to config day and here's all of our work. So can you talk to us a little bit about a time where Maybe you ended up going a direction that you didn't anticipate from the beginning. We've been talking a lot about advanced prototyping, but the other big flagship and temple feature that we were launching at Config was the inline preview, which is a little inline viewer that pops up while you're still in the editor environment. And I think this is important, both like structurally and philosophically about like bringing the prototyping closer to where you're editing it and like offering the space, which says, Hey, it's not just for like packaging up this final product. This is the thing that can happen. While you're editing, you can open it, you can close it. It's supposed to be designed to be um, semi-ephemeral, right? It's a quick preview and then to close again. But the way that we came about it is actually not nearly that, does not nearly have that level of foresight to it, which is essentially that another part of the Figma house, the dev mode side, they had actually explored this prototype. They prototyped this little inline preview. I think they built it in about a week as part of like kind of the handoff process. Like, hey, what if part of, you know, handing off this design was also making it really easy to quickly preview the prototypes? It's a great idea. And they're like, ah, you know, it's not quite right for our use cases here. We can see how it could work, but it's not, it wasn't the most important thing. And they kind of just, they tucked it to the side of the table. And then we were sitting over on the other side of the table saying like, are, are you going to finish that? <laughs> and so we kind of like, like, well, you know, what, what if we did the inline preview then if, if you're not interested in doing it? And it was really interesting because the way that they built it for the prototype ended up actually being the thing that we shipped in a large part. Obviously we, we did months of improvements and tweaks and um, changes to make it both perform better, but also be, you know, behave more holistically. That's where most of the polish was, was like, you know, 90% prototype, get it functioning. The last 10% is actually the 90% of just like doing all the things you need to do to, to make it work. It didn't start as one of our temple features, but it certainly helps tell a more cohesive story about what we're trying to do with prototyping in Figma, which is it's not just improving the functionality, it's making prototyping a more deliberate part of the design process. And well, we didn't arrive there in, in what might be the right way. We did kind of take advantage of the experimentation and exploration that other parts of the company are doing. And honestly, like that, more than anything else in other companies I, I've worked at, like that's one of the things that makes Figma, I think, particularly special 
which is that you do have this environment that Nico describes where engineers are stakeholders in the success and quality and implementation of a product, but you also have a company that really leans into turning its experiments into actual features. And there's a very real energy for doing so in a way that you might not see in other companies where they're, you know, we actively have these maker weeks, which are essentially, you know, make whatever you want within Figma or around Figma within the space. And many of those experiments become features here. So inline preview is a good example of that. I love maker week as a Twitter observer, because it means that my feed's going to be filled with all of these cool prototypes and you know, it's interesting to see like what actually sticks and inline preview is like one of my favorite features that you shipped. So it's kind of funny to see that you kind of stumbled into it a little bit. Yeah, we did. It, it's, it honestly, what was really validating for us is like, you know, we turned it on for ourselves that, that week that we decided to pick it up. We all turned it on for ourselves internally. And I think it was like two or three days later, I messaged Nico. They had to, we had to turn the flag off for a day because it broke something. And I messaged Nico. I'm like, I'm so, I'm so pissed right now. I can't use inline preview. This is so annoying that I have to like open a new tab. So we felt it right away. It's so funny how some of those things are just, they just happen. Like in preview, like the idea of having an in-context preview, we've wanted this for years and we often like somewhat overthought how we built this, how we design it and everything. And it's like, just plop an iframe in there and show the prototyping view. And then that gets you like halfway there and you're like, oh, wow, this feels so good. And that, I think, was kind of like the point where, in a way, that's a little mini story about prototyping, prototyping, that you get to feel something and you're like, oh, this is actually really valuable. This is worth it. Garrett, you said it's something interesting about this higher level vision of making prototype a more deliberate part of the design process. And it's interesting to hear you say that because, man, we're like not that many years removed from prototyping, very much so being constrained to the end of the design process where... I remember like making something and it's like, okay, I have enough of this figured out. It's time to export this to protopy or principal or something like that. And now that the vast majority of design teams are doing pretty much all of their prototyping inside of Figma, how do you think that can impact the broader design process? And in what ways are you trying to like level up design teams as Figma, you know, the keeper of the tool? I think a, a good example I have is actually, I was talking to a customer uh, a few months ago and they actually told me that designers had found, and I think this is really about kind of prototyping's impact on the, on the larger like relationship between product design and engineering. But they had felt that oftentimes when they're, when you're getting to a stakeholder decision point, when you're getting to a point where you need to tell a stakeholder, we want to go this direction or that one. It was often engineers that actually had the biggest lever to pull in those situations because oftentimes they could go and they could make something that behave more realistically or actually does, you know, pull in real data. And, and there's no better way to convince a stakeholder than by showing them your vision with their data, with their context. And that prototyping, as we've introduced these new features, has actually helped them have a larger say in how this goes, because suddenly with, you know, no offense intended to the engineers listening to this, but it gives designers the opportunity to do more without them. It gives them a, a chance to push their vision further. And you know, as humans, we, we all share the same characteristic of being distractible by shiny objects. I think that is like, that is just a, a true belief is like, it's easier to understand something when it behaves more like what you'd expect, when it feels real, when it feels tangible. And so what a lot of people have discovered is that if I do this, if I make this more convincing, then I'm more likely to get to the outcome that I want. And that's focused on like the very specific use case of like handoff of, of getting stakeholder buy-in. But 
I think a lot of what it means is that it, intrinsically we're, we're giving design a larger seat at the table by, by enabling it to do more. And then I think the longer term tale of this is if designers are doing more engineering shaped work and engineers are getting into Figma to understand, you know, the design vision and structure of these things, then inherently we're starting to talk more about those shared artifacts. And so in different ways, we're getting closer to, you know, ultimately what I was really focused on as, like, as an individual is like, man, it'd be great if the way that designers and engineers collaborate is over the exploration and articulation of the thing that they're trying to build together. And I think that's what prototyping is, is really kind of cheating around the edges. And when you getting when you get to a gap, being able to just lay a board down and walk over it, knowing that at some point when you do this right, you're gonna have to fix that. But getting to that validation and getting to that that more sophisticated level of like agreement and understanding. I think doing research and talking to customers like you're explaining, yeah, it's a good way to find problems, but also it allows you to be able to articulate and point at like what good looks like. And so you use this phrase prototyping culture. I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on that. What are some of the traits that you're seeing in some of the teams that you think a lot of other designers all over the world could learn from and emulate? In my mind, it's really about like kind of pushing ideas farther than what you might have expected. Like, I think a lot of times the role may have been like, I need to get this crafted in such a point that it's at least easily understandable for the person who actually does have to go and build this. And I think in my mind, prototyping culture is saying like, no, my job doesn't stop there. My job is actually to get closer to the users who will be using this thing and better understand how they want to use something outside of what I perceive to be the way we use it. You know, when I hear designers within Figma talking about it, it's like, it's, it's brain melting to design Figma within Figma sometimes because you're inherently thinking about the chrome around the thing you're designing in as the problem and like, how do I make this better for people? But I think prototyping culture is, is ultimately about continuing to close that empathy gap of understanding what a user is trying to do. And if this is the right solution for that problem. Yeah, exactly. I think that like, that's the immediate impact to the designer, right? Because if you prototype more, you can validate your ideas with the people you're building it for. You can give it to them and be like, try it out. Like, what do you think? Which also, of course, comes with a sense of vulnerability that by doing that, you might actually end up with the result of like, oh, this isn't good. My design isn't good. I'm not a good designer, right? You need to overcome that, of course, because in the other context where it's like, oh, I share this to my design review stakeholders. I share this with my engineers. So many people could have said something, right? But they built it and then they realized that in the end that it's bad once it's shipped. Suddenly it's everyone's responsibility. If you're doing usability testing with a prototype you've built, it kind of is a little bit more your fault, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in an opportunity to grow and improve and iterate and find better ideas after that. And I think that's kind of like what prototyping culture means at the individual level. I do think though that step-by-step, step, there is a question on what this means on, on the larger organizational level, like the teams that we see that are successful, I would say, as, as, as prototyping cultures, have ways to a uplevel people into becoming prototypers, becoming more advanced prototypers, some sort of internal programs, finding ways to give designers time to understand and, and try it out and, and fail and make mistakes and learn it and get better at prototyping. And then on the other hand, it's setting expectation that this is something that you'd want to see from designers that product reviews are great if they include results from 
the prototypes that you've built. And ideally, you don't build the prototype the night before, so you could actually test it before you have your review, right? I'm definitely guilty of, of that one as well. So I'm not sitting. Is that, a, is that an idiom in English, like sitting in a glass house? I'm sitting in that house for sure as well. But what I mean is that like the organization leadership needs to establish a space in which a prototyping culture can grow and be nurtured over time because it is comparing it to the status quo in a way asking for more time. It's my design is not done when all the static artifacts are done. That's just one step. And so there needs to be a change in thinking at more senior levels as well in those kinds of teams that don't necessarily prototype that much that this is actually cheaper for you in the end and you'll get to better product faster if more people in your organization prototype and you'll ask more people of that and provide the space for teams to do that. Because then more problems will be found faster. You don't spend unnecessary engineering cycles and you'll find better solutions. I think the third part is the one that like is the most interesting one for me because once you know 15 things that don't work, you'll find the next one that works, right? And that's maybe the one that like resonates with users the most. I think it's interesting to think about the spectrum of complexity that a prototype can have because on one end you could just have two frames that are demonstrating like the most basic cover state and then you can have this really robust flow with all of this logic and complex states and everything like that. And we've talked a lot about different use cases for prototypes. You know, we've mentioned like getting buy-in for stakeholders and handoff and user tests. Can you help designers think about the level of fidelity that they should invest into their prototypes and how that changes depending on the use case and where they're at in the design process? I'm thinking about this meme with like the like bell curve and like in the beginning, it's the like, just build what you need. And in the end, that's just build what you need. And it's like, in the middle is like, oh, it always has to be the perfect prototype with all states all figured out and everything, right? I hate to say it, but it just depends. If you feel comfortable and you have like three hours left in front of a presentation and you want to demo something and you know, oh, I can do this just by like duplicating screens and just changing things on one screen and to the next screen, to the next screen. And that's the easier, more approachable way of working for you. Go ahead. Like if in the end, you're going to share this, as a demo, as like a little like walkthrough that you are screen sharing, no one needs to know how you built your prototype. And I think that's really the part is that like the effect is the thing that matters. And if you get to that effect by using variables, which allows you to create more maintainable, more realistic prototypes that you could iterate on in a longer period of time. For example, if you're doing like real life user tests, where more paths need to work, right? Or if you're just demoing or showing something, the maintainability doesn't matter that much, right? And, then, and in those moments, then a different kind of fidelity, like a single path fidelity, right? Makes sense because you know the story, right? You know the story you're about to tell if you're demoing the prototype. That's ultimately the thing that matters the most, in my opinion, when you're demoing a prototype. When you're demoing a prototype to any use case, to a developer, to designers, to stakeholders in a product review, even to users in like a, maybe a concept testing session. If you know the story of what you want to tell, then it's closer to you building a presentation than to building a quote unquote prototype. 
and it still is a prototype, I would say, right? But you know exactly where to click. And that's a funny story. When I first started at Figma, close to six years ago, I had this one presentation where I was working with an engineer. We were arguing a little bit about how it should work. And I was using some of the existing prototyping features. We were talking about scrolling back then to how scrolling could be integrated into Figma. And I built it as a prototype and I had some little hacks here and there on, and made it work. And then I essentially presented it. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if it worked like this and that and that? And the engineer came to me afterwards and was like, you know, Nico, I don't like you kind of like going across my back to another engineer, getting this built so that you can demo it. And I'm like, I didn't go to any engineer. This thing wasn't working. This was a prototype. Here, I built this in six frames. I was just explaining. And he, and he said, but you knew exactly where to click. And I'm like, yeah, that's my job. Like, my job is to find a way to communicate the story on how this feature should feel. And I think that's one big part of what prototypes can be, helping you communicate a story. And there's this other part where somebody else opens this thing and you want to see what they do, what they play with, what they actually feel. And you need to somehow find a way that this thing feels real, that this fourth wall in a way is kept up, that they are like, oh, this is a real product. Because at that moment, you get the realistic responses back to them. You get the experience of like, oh, but I wanted this other setting here because this one now competes with some real life experience in my context and I can't use this now. And for those cases, compared to those single path level of fidelity, you essentially need a multi-path level of fidelity because you don't know yet which direction the user is going to pick because that's exactly the thing you want to test. So comparing it to the story kinds of fidelities and the multipath kinds of fidelities where you want to test which path users end up going into and which path users end up being stuck. I would say that like, if you land on something on the latter side, learning how variables work, how variant binding works and how, how it can help you set up those prototypes more efficiently is definitely helpful. But yeah, in the end, like build what works for the cause you have and try it out in one case. And if that doesn't work, try out something else, iterate essentially, on the type of prototype you build as well. Let's expand about on that a little bit, because I do think you can wrap almost everything in this answer of it depends, classic designer cop-out, great. But let's talk specifically to this person that is listening, and they are comfortable prototyping in Figma. They haven't used variables yet at all. And maybe they even point at it and say, yeah, that's just over-architecting things. That's not necessary as this excuse for not tinkering and exploring, what are the clear signals or use cases where you can point at and say like, yeah, yeah, you probably should be experimenting with variables here. Hello, listener. If you, if you land at a point where, where you feel yourself like, for example, duplicating a lot of screens, even for a simple little prototype, or you duplicate a screen and only make one tiny change, or you end up in a prototype where you click through and present it and preview it and you realize, oh, but in this case, in this scenario, I forgot to change the animation in this case to something else because I had changed it in this other place. You might run into these redundancy problems where you've duplicated to a point that isn't helpful anymore, that makes it harder to maintain. And in those cases, try using one variable. My other favorite tip is, is a lot of local interactive components, like just 
create local component sets, little interactive components constantly. My prototypes aren't just screens. They're sometimes screens and sometimes they have a little prototype, like a little mini interactive component in them. Sometimes big interactive components in just one screen because it helps you being slightly faster. Because I think the value is really is like, once you do that more and more, once you use variables in a scrappy way as well, then you get to a point where editing something after the fact just becomes so much easier. And doing the second, the third, the fourth iteration is more fluent. I love the idea of using local components as a way to speed up your workflow, because I feel like a lot of people put components into this bucket of the thing that you do once you have the design figured out and you're okay with it being more rigid, when in reality, you're just decreasing the number of knobs that you have to turn to iterate more quickly. Oh yeah, all of those. I think all of the design system concepts we have, use them as local and as scrappily as possible while you're designing and building prototypes. They're efficiency helpers. They're not just helpers for efficiency at scale, they're also helpers for efficiency in small, like scrappy exploration flows. I'd like to wrap up by looking into the future a little bit because Figma recently released this what if video that had everyone on Twitter kind of wondering what that could look like, regardless of Adobe acquisition or not. I'd like to know what are your personal what ifs as it relates to prototyping? Well, I think the elephant in the room, at least as it stands today with prototyping is certainly AI, machine learning, large language models, whatever uh, flavor of term you want to apply. But the, the general idea being something that helps you move from a rough approximation of a behavior to an actual abstraction being created. And I think for us, a lot of the gaps that we think about, about what makes it hard to prototype in Figma or, you know, prototype more generally, a lot of those gaps can be solved by features that help make that move more smoothly and more elegantly and connect more deeply with what the user is actually trying to do. And so I think for us, the thing that's most exciting is like ways that we can remove some of the tedious things that users have to do every day when creating prototypes, but then also take that a little bit further and help people who may not have ever gotten even close to creating this type of functionality do more, to get closer to that and to build another entry point by which you can kind of work backwards from there. And so in my mind, I learned to code by using like Dreamweaver, by using web editors where, you know, a WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get, where you, you move this rectangle and you can see it moving. But then I noticed like over here, the code is changing too. And I think AI and machine learning, these, these generated things can serve that same kind of context, which is saying, this is what I want to happen. Can you show me how that happens in this environment? And then in doing so, it can build context and you can work backwards from what's being created to actually do more there. When we think about like the future of, of Figma, I think a lot of it is about ways that we can make the process of creating these things feel more fluid and more intuitive. And then by extension, you can get closer to making them more powerful from there. I think, yeah, it's like AI is, is happening. I've just been baffled over the last weeks, months, and year really what journey it has been. I just saw on Twitter that I think ChatGPT got released like a year ago as a recording. This pretty much exactly. This is wild to me. Absolutely wild. But I think what, what for Figma is going to be just interesting in the future as well is, is we've created this collaborative space in, and we're continuing to increase the level of fidelity on the prototyping side. There are aspects that inside of those constructs we're adding like variables, like expressions that definitely do feel like there may be more quote unquote engineering, right? 
And the question is like, should engineers support designers within the design process? What happens if, 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 if designers and engineers potentially work together in the same space to create a prototype? And could you learn from each other? Could this become a more collaborative space to build prototypes where you essentially feel more like you're going hand in hand, right? We've enabled this with multiplayer. And as we're adding more power and more functionality into Figma, I think we're actually inviting more and more different folks and different roles to participate in this process of making things touchable, making things real, making things experienceable. At this point, like, I'm super excited for my birthday because my birthday is on June 26th. And June 26th is the day we have our config. We, of course, can't say too much, but I'm very excited. I think last year's config in person, it was absolutely exciting seeing everyone in like a big room. I can't wait to have the same experience again. So yeah, config 2024, June 26th to June 27th. Hope to see you there. I will definitely, I already got my ticket. Can't wait. You guys have set a pretty high bar, so I'm excited to see what you ship. And thank you, Nico and Garrett, for taking the time today. It's been really cool to just get the behind the scenes of what the heck it was like and what you're thinking and how you approach work at Figma, like this tool that we all use every single day. So thank you.